you, Lisa, and love you for that very appropriate ministry in music. Wasn't it wonderful to see these couples up front dedicating their children to the Lord? When parents are dedicating their children to the Lord, they are, in reality, first and foremost, dedicating themselves to the Lord in the way in which they're going to rear their child. One of the questions that they were asked was, do you dedicate yourselves as parents to live a godly life so that your child will see Christ in you? I have a very practical question this morning, and that is, what does that look like? How does one live a godly life so as to show forth Christ in us? Hannah and Elkanah in the Old Testament serve as an example of what it means to live a godly life. This morning, due to our dedicatory service of uh, child dedication... We are going to go on a brief excursus from the book of Ecclesiastes and look at what is a seminal section on dedicating one's child to the Lord. There is so much in this particular passage, and this message started to get so long that it is now turned into a mini-series, and we will either have two or three messages on dedication from First Samuel chapter 1. If you're not... There, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. As we shall see that Hannah's life serves as a tremendous illustration of how the vows of child dedication are to be lived out. So we're going to be looking at three different vows this morning, just the first, and that is of dedicating oneself to the Lord so as our children would see Christ in us. Godliness is to be lived out not in the confines of a monastery, but in the reality of the world in which we live. We live in a very real world with very real challenges. And one of the things that we are going to learn early on in life is that we have to overcome many obstacles if we are going to live a godly life And show forth Christ in us. We have to overcome a great many obstacles. This morning I'd like us to focus on the obstacles in Hannah's life. That she had to overcome if she was going to live a life of godliness. And demonstrate that relationship to the Lord to her family. She had a lot to overcome but overcome them she did. And that is why she is such a wonderful example for us of godliness this morning. So the theme of this morning's message is the godly example that Hannah provides in overcoming difficulties. The first difficulty that Hannah had to overcome was the difficult situations associated with her husband. Let's look at Elkanah this morning for a few moments in order to better understand the relationship that existed between Hannah and Elkanah. What do we know about Hannah's husband? Well, we know that 
he was not a perfect man. We know that that imperfection resulted in his having two wives. If you look at 1 Samuel 1, 1 and 2 with me, it says, Now there was a certain man from Ramathium Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. So he had two wives. We know that he was a spiritual man, for it tells us in verse 3 that he went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So he was a religious man, not just in name only, but in practice. Uh, he was indeed a practicing Jewish uh, believer and fulfilled his responsibilities and duties in his worship to God. We know that he was consistent in his devotion to God, for it tells us in verse 3 that he did this on a yearly basis. So this was his normal procedure. This is what he did on every uh, occasion in which it was appropriate in that festival season to be traveling and offering sacrifice. This he did year in and year out. We know that he was a good provider for his family. Verse 4. It says that when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. So he provided for his wives. He provided for Penina's children, both sons and daughters. And he even provided a double portion for Hannah. We know that Elkanah loved Hannah, for the text explicitly tells us so. Verse 5. But to Hannah he would give a double portion. Why? For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. So he loved Hannah. And we find out that Hannah's barrenness did not cause Elkanah to love her less. In fact, it seems as though it caused him to love her more. The Lord's closing of Hannah's womb does not appear to be a judgmental statement in nature, but rather as a statement of fact. It isn't that he was cursing Hannah. It's just that this is what God had done. She had not been privileged to uh, bear a child, and it was the will of God that to this point she had not born a child. A fact that Elkanah was willing to accept in some degree. Willing to accept in some degree. I say that because he demonstrated love for Elkanah. He continued in his worship of God. He did not let this situation uh, undermine his faith or trust or confidence in Jehovah, nor his commitment to him to worship him. Nor did it cause him to be less committed to his wife. But probably the reason that he had two wives is that Hannah, as she's mentioned first in the text, would lead us to believe that she was the first wife. And because she did not have a child, he took a second wife, which was very common practice in the Old Testament era, that if a, a wife did not bear children, then uh, the husband would take another wife. So I said that he accepted it in a degree. But you see, he did take another wife.
And she did bear to him sons and daughters. We know that Elkanah was a caring husband to Hannah. It tells us in verse 7 that it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, that she, that is Penina, would provoke her, that is Hannah, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? He was moved by her sadness. He was aware of her tears. He was sympathetic to her plight. In asking the question, why do you weep? It is obvious that Elkanah knows the answer. He's not asking information at this point. He knows why she's weeping. She's weeping because she doesn't have any children and Penina is making her life miserable. He knows it. He gets it. But the question that he raises was to communicate to Hannah. It was a way of saying to her in a kindly rebuke, Why are you weeping? Look at what you have. Understand how God has blessed you. And then he says to her at the end of verse 8, Am I not better to you than ten sons? The answer was no. No. He got it in a sense, but in another sense, he didn't. He was saying to Hannah, Am I not better to you than if you had a number of sons? Now you have to understand where Elkanah is coming from. And he is saying that she has, that is Hannah has, Elkanah in a way that Penina doesn't. She's experiencing Elkanah's love and commitment and provision that goes beyond the love and the provision and the commitment that he is demonstrating towards Penina. He's saying, in essence, aren't I doing everything under the sun that I can to minister to you and to help you? And in fairness to Elkanah, I believe that he was. But that still wasn't enough. That still wasn't sufficient. And we need to understand the reality of that insufficiency. Because it was easy for Elkanah to say, Hannah, it's okay that you don't have any sons or daughters. Because he had taken another wife and had sons and daughters by that other wife. You see, Elkanah was at at unrest as well. Elkanah was longing for children as well. But he sought a, another alternative. And so in that sense, it was kind of easy to say to Hannah, look at how God has blessed you. Get over it. And I don't think he was saying that in a miserable way, but in as loving and a caring way as he could, but it still came short. It wasn't sufficient. It didn't meet her need. It didn't relieve her suffering. So she had to overcome the relationship that she had to her husband. And secondly, she had to overcome 
a difficult relationship with Penina. At best, Penina was continually competing with Hannah, and at the worst, Penina viewed Hannah and her adversary or enemy. Notice verse 6. Her rival, however. Her rival. What a way to describe the relationship that existed between these two women. They were rivals. They were competing against one another. They were competing. They were competing for Elkanah's affections. And on that front, Hannah was losing, uh, excuse me, Hannah was winning and Penina was losing. So they were competing for the love of their husband. Hannah's out front. But they were also competing in the realm of children. And Penina was winning dramatically on that front. For she had, according to the text, sons, plural, and daughters, plural. So she had at least four children and probably more. And so on each birth, it's a reminder to Hannah of her own barrenness, of her own situation. And Penina made it as most difficult and hard and unpleasant as she could. She took delight in torturing and causing emotional distress in the heart of Hannah. Uh, It has been said some people are the happiest when they're making other people miserable. And it seems like that could rightly be said of Penina. She was the happiest when she was making Hannah's life miserable. It tells us in verse 7 that she, being Penina, would provoke Hannah. Provoke her. Incite her to great distress. Tried to unnerve her. Tried to cause her pain. She was miserable to live with, to be sure. And as a result, Hannah was greatly grieved. It brought emotional distress, verse 7, so she wept. She wept. And it caused physical distress, in verse 7, and she would not eat. She wept and she would not eat. How difficult it must have been for Hannah to provide Penina the satisfaction of knowing that she was getting to to Hannah. This is her rival. This is her adversary. This is the one that is trying to cause her emotional distress. And it was a victory on the part of Penina when Hannah would cry. When Hannah would weep. And when Hannah could not eat. And what is the most tragic aspect of that whole situation is that it reached its climax at the most holiest time of the year. When they would travel and present their sacrifices uh, to the Lord. A time of celebration. 
a time of festival, a time of rejoicing in all that God has done, is being twisted by Penina to cause Hannah distress and anguish and not to be able to rejoice, but to weep and to cry. This is really spiritual tyranny that's taking place. So you have a very ungodly woman that is torturing a godly woman. And then verse 7, it happened year after year. As much as that would be difficult on one occasion, imagine that year in and year out. That gets old. That gets miserable. That is unpleasant. One doesn't have to be tremendously imaginative to contemplate what that family existence must have been like. That torture uh, for Elkanah and for the children and, and for the parents. It was a miserable situation. But you see, here is the application. Godliness does not mean that we won't have any difficult situations in our homes. I chose the hymn, I like the hymn, but it is slightly misleading. Happy the home when God is there. I know what it is saying. God is a tremendous resource. God is a source of great comfort. God is our ultimate encouragement and help. But it doesn't mean that simply because God is there, that everything is going to be hunky-dory. But the, it also goes on to talk about the relationship that we have to Jesus Christ as being a part of that happy home. And this home was not happy because of Penina's failure to have a right relationship with God. But it doesn't mean that we won't have difficult situations in our home. But godliness rises above the difficult situations. Godliness makes a right stand, responds correctly, even in the midst of difficult situations. So that godliness is manifested in the way that we overcome difficult situations in our home. And I would say to you this morning, maybe you have one of the following difficult situations in your home. Perhaps you feel that your spouse doesn't really understand your situation or your needs. You may be saying to yourself, you're struggling with some issues. I don't know what they are. Maybe they're health issues. Maybe there are personal perceptions. Maybe there are things that you don't like about yourself. Maybe there are things that you don't like about your existence, your work, your lack thereof, or whatever the case may be. But whatever it is, you feel that your husband doesn't support you in that in the way that they they should, or you just recognize that they're incapable of, of meeting that need. Not that they don't try, not that they don't want to, but they're not able to remove that hurt, that, that heartache, that difficulty. It's beyond them, even as this was. Certainly, Alcana would have loved to give a child to Hannah. He was incapable of doing so. This is what the Lord had done. And as spouses, many times... There are needs that we would love to meet, but we are incapable of meeting them for a variety of reasons. 
Godliness has to respond properly to that lack. Maybe you have a rival in your home. Perhaps your husband doesn't have two wives, but maybe he has a former wife that's bringing tension and unpleasant circumstances to your your present marital situation and status. Maybe the in-laws are vying for time and affection that is bringing stress into the home. Or perhaps there are stepchildren that are creating issues. Or it simply could be that there is an infant. Or there is a child with a special need that is causing parents to have difficulty finding time for each other and times to meet the need of that child. There can be all kinds of pressures that enter in. Maybe there are struggles in knowing how to discipline a child. And one thinks that they need to crack down. The other thinks that they need to demonstrate more grace and and forgiveness. And especially as children start wandering away from the Lord or living lives that are not pleasing to the Lord and, and parents are ready to throw up their hands. And when mothers and fathers can't agree as to what is the best procedure, what is going to be the most helpful in the end, and there is an honest disagreement, it creates difficulty and hardship. But godliness, you see, perseveres in those situations and seeks to do what honors the Lord and brings him the greatest joy. So what was Hannah's response to these difficult situations? Note them, first of all, she wept. She wept, verse 7. She would provoke her so she would weep. There is nothing ungodly about weeping. There is nothing ungodly about being at an emotional wit's end. There is nothing ungodly about experiencing the pain and the hardships and difficulties of life. We are not impervious to life's disappointments or heartaches. Sometimes Christians have a tendency to put on a Teflon coating that makes it look like that the problems of life just roll off us. And they have no impact. Well, the reality is that that they do. That they do. And uh, maybe you weep uh, publicly, or maybe you weep quietly. But inwardly, there's pain. There's heartache. Her other response was that she lost her appetite. Verse 7, she would not eat. It's amazing how some people respond to stress. I don't know how you respond to stress in your life. I, I think there's two kinds of people in this world, and that is when they're under stress, they don't eat, and the other is when they're under stress, they do eat. I'm under the do eat variety of when they're stressed. When, when I am uh, upset, there's nothing like a good piece of chocolate cake to uh, make life look a little bit uh, easier. I, I, you know, they talk about comfort food. 
I understand that better than being upset and not being able to eat. But you see, the reality is that, that these things affect us physically. We get discouraged, we get despondent, depressed. Sometimes don't even feel like getting out of bed. Don't want to deal with the, the next issue and hardship of, of life. It takes its toll. It gets old. Hannah knew those weaknesses. Hannah knew those frustrations. But hers was a godly response. And what was it? Well, the fact that she prayed. She prayed. Notice in the text. I'm sorry, my, I have tears in my eyes and I can't read. But uh, you can find a verse and it says that uh, she went to the Lord's house and uh, she prayed. And she prayed. She took it to the Lord. She asked a child of him. That's the proper response. It's not the only response. We're going to see more in this chapter as we look at it again next week. But I submit to you that that is where a godly life begins. It begins with prayer. It's a recognition that the only ultimate way out is by God's grace. It is a matter of taking whatever it is that is causing us that pain, that hardship, that difficult, that, that unpleasantness, that emotional distress, and taking it to the Lord. It is a humble recognition that he and he alone can meet our need and sustain us. You see, that's what real godliness does. Not that our spouses aren't important, but we soon need to realize that they can't be our ultimate source of strength and help, nor can it be our children or our neighbor or our friends or even our confidant. It has to be God. And so she prayed and she took her burden to the Lord. It is our response to life's difficulty that demonstrate the work of Christ in us. It is the answer to her prayer that shows forth the activity of God. It is in the response of our prayers that God's activity is seen. I remember a situation growing up in our home, and uh, my brother was always quite difficult to deal with, and uh, he really didn't know the Lord in his uh, earlier years of life, and he went off to military service. And uh, when he was in uh, boot camp, uh, he found it to be a very unpleasant situation. And he found it to be very, very difficult. 
And uh, I remember a phone call that was made to our home because I just remember my mother weeping and weeping and weeping after she got off the phone with my brother. And she said, and he said, you can't believe how unhappy I am. And he said, one thing I know. He said, if I ask you to pray, you'll pray. The only time in my life that I remember my brother asking for someone to pray for him. Mothers, the greatest thing you can do for your family is first of all pray for yourselves and then pray for them. Pray for your children. Pray for your spouse. Pray that God would work. That is the ultimate act of dedication. That's how we present people to the Lord. We pray for them. Thank you, Lisa, for that wonderful ministry and music this morning that illustrated the kind of prayer that we need to make for our families. May God grant us godly homes as we overcome life's difficulties through the instrumentality of prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you and praise you that you are our God. We thank you that you hear and answer prayer. We are thankful that you know our our upstanding and our downsitting. You understand our thought afar off. You're acquainted with all our sufferings and grief, and you are moved by them. Oh, Lord, I, I pray for our congregation this morning. I pray for our families. I pray for our mothers. Lord, I who do not know their needs, you do. I who do not know the inward struggles, you are fully aware of. And I'm thankful, O oh God, that I don't need to teach you or instruct you, but simply we cry out unto you, O oh God, and ask that you would refresh and renew. Encourage anyone that is despondent or saddened or hurt or distressed or pained or frustrated in their relationships. Oh, Lord, do a work in their hearts and lives. Help us all to be godly individuals, praying for and dedicating our children living a life that directs them and teaches them, shows forth a pathway that can be followed in overcoming life's difficulties and struggles. Oh, Lord, help us to be a model for the next generation, a model of what it means to walk with you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.